in a way because you're pushing yourself into new situations and you're, you're not even doing it on purpose these things just happen i mean i'd never intended for my friend to say you need to leave but when he said it then your brain starts running and you think oh no what am i going to do now hi i'm alan hill the nostalgic vagabond i lived out of a backpack for many years during my 20s and some 30s i'm less of a nomad these days in this podcast series, I'm catching up with old friends, wonderful people I've met in the Traveller's Trek. And what better time is there to catch up, reminisce, and see how everyone is getting on in 2020? I hope you enjoy hearing about our journeys as much as we've enjoyed sharing. What the hell is a working holiday? It's kind of oxymoronic, but this idea is a common ambition for young people. Countries like Australia and Canada offer visa programs to people usually under 30 for almost every country. These kinds of experiences offer travellers in their 20s the opportunity to grow and experience things outside their normal sphere, whilst at the same time keeping their pockets balanced by earning a bit of dosh from time to time between destinations. I guess that's how I see it, but everyone's different. Rory McLeod is my guest on this episode. We met pretty much seven years ago to the day in a very, very cool hostel, the Canadiana. Both of us set up base there as a Toronto downtown location in order to find work, but also be close to the city vibes and experience a true Toronto winter. Rory left Edinburgh and went to work in Calgary earlier in 2013 when he moved to Canada on his working holiday visa program. So how the hell did he end up in Toronto? Here's a story. So Rory, good to see you, man. It's uh, it's been a while. Thanks for inviting me to to take part. Yeah, uh, I was just thinking it was almost exactly a year ago since I was in Edinburgh. Saw you at the fringe. Yes, and I imagine that if you were to come again at the moment, it would be a very different experience for you. What's it like there right now? It's actually really nice. I, I mean, I was going to say that from a from a selfish point of view, it's really pleasant to walk through the centre of town in August and not have to navigate hordes of people. <laughs> for the, I mean, though I can't really remember, I don't think there's ever been an August where I've been able to do that. So, yeah, it's nice. It's nice to, to go walking around the city centre and there's a lot of stuff that I've seen that I've never noticed before. Mm. Um, I don't know if you travelled down the Royal Mile when you were up visiting, but that's basically the, the main tourist street in the city and uh, the main historic street as well so there's a lot of points of historical interest but if you're walking up there normally you're having to focus on dodging past people yeah and there's no real time or space to look around at the buildings and look around there's all kinds of different plaques around so i've I've noticed quite a lot of stuff i've never seen before just just because there's no one else around so it's been quite nice but i think it must be really strange for anyone visiting I can't imagine there's a great deal of stuff to do. The tour buses are still running and there's, there's plenty of places open, but whether people actually want to visit them, I don't know. Definitely a strange time, but I guess as a local, you know, I'm from a tourist town myself. I grew up on a beach resort. Yeah, you do get a bit kind of put off by the tourists sometimes when they invade your city. So I imagine, yeah, this being your first August where you've had it to yourself in a way. 
is uh, yeah. is quite a weird but also enjoyable experience. Yeah, and I think for anyone who's been here, they could probably understand because it's not the biggest city in the world. I mean, it was built in the 1100s, so when, when there was a fraction of, of the population. So, I mean, these streets weren't built for millions of people, but every year millions come and, and have a great time. So um, I'm sure a lot of people, anyone who's been to Edinburgh will probably be thinking, yeah, it must be a lot quieter now. Yeah. Well, this podcast is called The Nostalgic Vagabond. It's about travel and about travel lifestyle. In a way, it's about me and the people I've met on my travels. Let's take a, a trip down memory lane, Rory. I'm curious if you can recall do you remember when and where we met? We met, I think, in November. Or no, sorry, it would have been October, actually. It would have been October 2013, I think, at the Canadiana Backpackers Inn in Toronto. Rest in peace. Uh, yeah, I know. It's a shame it's no longer there. But yeah, I remember I was, I was in Toronto for about a week and they put me in a room with you. Yes, number six at the back. Yes, that was it. So I can't remember our first conversation, but I remember you striking up a, a, a chat with me. I, was, I only thought I was going to be there for the week at that point. So I didn't really make much effort to get to know anyone in any great depth. But I remember you and I think Lace, yeah, was it? Yeah, Brazilian lady. Yeah, really nice yes. lady. So she, she was in the room as well. And then I left the hostel on Halloween to go on a road trip with my family. Mm. They were flying out to Chicago and we were going on a road trip from Chicago to New Orleans. And then I had a Canadian work visa. So I came back to Canada after that, but I didn't really know where to start. So I just started where I'd left, which was the Canadiana and you were still there. <laughs> so I think naturally I just gravitated towards you and, and we struck up a friendship and I was there for maybe three or four months. Yeah, that's true. That was fairly standard with a lot of people who were there in the winter months, just on a work and travel permit, trying to get a start and figure out their next move. I remember you and others, me included actually at that time, trying to find a job, looking at the possibility of another apartment and how much that would cost, you know, uh, with the types of jobs we were able to get. How did you find that experience of, in a sense, kind of settling and not traveling, but settling in a, in a city as a, a work holiday person. I really enjoyed it. I mean, I actually think that was my favorite part of my trip. I've never really been much of a traveler type. And even my, my trip to Canada was never intended to be a traveling escapade. It was, it was intended as a purely as a way to get work. And what was really nice about the Canadiana was it, it was a bit like a student flat or a, a family home because, as you say, everyone, or there was a significant number of people that were in the same boat. They were in Canada for the first time. They were looking for work. We were pretty much of a similar age and we had everything we needed under that roof. There was a, a great place to socialize. There was a movie room. So I, yeah, I loved it. I thought it was a great experience. And I think that's why part of the reason why it's so sad that it's no longer there because just a lot of good feelings there. Yeah. And it felt like it wasn't a, 
it was a very old-fashioned building, wasn't it? It was a row of Victorian tenements, really. So um, there was an oldie-worldie vibe and quite a warm, welcoming atmosphere there, which I hadn't really got in, a, in other hostels. I mean, not that I've been in a great number of them, but it was definitely a hostel where you went in and you felt like you were coming back into your living room and then all your friends were there and it, it was great. Yeah. Would you say what you did was a gap year or was it something a bit different? No, I think it was more of a, I mean, the, the Canadian work visa was called a working holiday visa, yeah, which I've always, I've always found such a weird thing to call it because either you're there for work, you're there for a holiday. It's not, there's not really any such thing as a working holiday, <laughs> but maybe that's the most accurate way to describe it because I had fully intended to come over and really just work. I hadn't intended to travel from Vancouver to Toronto and to work on farms in between and to meet all kinds of different people. So that was never part of the original plan. That just is how it panned out. Speaking of working on farms, Rory, something that I heard the very, very first time I went traveling in 2009, well, not the first time I went traveling, but the first time I went a long way on the other side of the world to go traveling. I was in Los Angeles and I'd met a Canadian. Uh, she was actually from Toronto, ironically. And uh, we met in Hollywood. And she'd just come from a um, few months woofing in uh, somewhere further north than that. I think it may have been up, up in British Columbia or somewhere near there. And that was the first time I heard about woofing. And I've done it once myself. And uh, you've done it yourself as well, haven't you? Uh, yeah, I did it three times. I did it on three different farms. I think it's one of those things that you, you always hear horror stories about. You'll bump into someone and they say that they ended up on a farm that was essentially a concentration camp and they were <laughs> forced to do slave labor from dawn till dusk. But no, I never found, I didn't, I, maybe I was lucky in the, the three that I got, but no, they were all very nice people. And I just think it's a good deal, really. Working for your board and accommodation and food essentially isn't it yeah yeah you do you work during the daytime hours and then they feed you you go to sleep and then you wake up and you do it all over again so <laughs> it seemed like a fair enough deal for me and, and I can't complain as to how I was treated at any of them I think maybe the first one they did mess around a wee bit with the the amount of work that they made me do but because it was the first one I'd ever done I had nothing to compare it to mm. so it was only when other people dropped in that they said this is quite strict actually and we were at this work away where the the farmer lent us his truck and we could drive into town and we could go to the cinema we could go to a bar there was none of that on the the first farm I was at there was strictly a, a strict no drinking policy I was there two months maybe and they gave me one day off. <laughs> the funny thing was, the day off, they, I just woke up one morning and they said, we've decided that we're going to give you the day off today. So just do whatever you want. So I thought, I'll go off on a walk, a nice long walk. Maybe in the afternoon I'll read or something. So I go off on this walk. I come back, have some lunch. And then they say, we've got a surprise planned for you this afternoon. And I think, oh, this is exciting. And then I realized that the surprise is picking apples from an apple tree, which is work. <laughs> so 
their, their amazing treat that they gave me was just a way of getting me to do another job for them. But they were really nice people. So, I mean, yeah. I'm really just picking out the, the funny aspects of, of my stay. What was your motivation for doing that farm work, working away? Was it to basically extend your trip by being able to survive and having no financial outlay? Or was it for a unique and random experience or maybe meet different people or see a new cultural realm? I think the main reason was that, as I said, the, the, the reason I went to Canada was because I had this working holiday visa. I had difficulty finding work in the UK and I had a friend who worked in recruitment in Calgary in Canada. So I emailed him one night saying, look, if I was to get a work visa, could you get me a job in Canada? And he said, yes. So I just thought, okay, that's fine. I'll do that. And he, I, he, he said, you can come and live with me and my family and we'll move out. We'll get a flat. We'll take over the universe. <laughs> that sort of thing. So I thought, I thought, this is great. And I've known this guy since maybe about the age of nine. And I was 21 when I went out there. So I'd known this guy a long time. But basically went out and we basically had a falling out. Right. And so he... he told me one day that I needed to move out <laughs> because, his because his parents didn't want me in the house anymore. And I said, well, I thought the plan was that we were going to move out and get a flat of our own. And take over the world. Yeah. And he said, that was never the plan. Oh. That was, there was no, we never said that. So the guy was a, a chronic exaggerator and a person who didn't really dealing the truth very much. Mm. And I think having known him from a very young age, I always thought that that was just one part of his personality because the exaggerations he told were always just to do with comic stories. I was at the bus stop and this happened, or I was in a shop and you'll never believe this. So it wasn't really a big deal that he was exaggerating these things. It was just quite funny. Whereas living with him, I realized that actually he does this with other stuff as well. And he's, he, he started lying to me about money and stuff. And it was all just a bit weird. So we had a falling out. He told me that I needed to move out. I was basically in a position where I felt really awkward. And I don't know if, if you were aware of what happened in Calgary in 2013, but there was basically the worst flood in 100 years. Right. So I think something like 100,000 people were homeless mm. and then he, here's my friend telling me that I have to move out and be homeless as well yeah basically so at that point I just started panicking and I thought what's a quick way for me to get out of here that doesn't require much planning and my brother had told me about this workaway thing before I left for Canada mm. so it was at that point that the light switch in my head went off and I thought ah I could do that so it was kind of like survival mode yeah, yeah, a wee bit. But then having said that, there was maybe, there was a couple of weeks between him telling me I have to leave and me actually leaving. And in those two weeks, I was looking for a place to go. But I was also looking for somewhere quite interesting. And the place I ended up was a sage farm where the, the elderly couple who ran it were very spiritual. Mm -hmm. They would make dream catchers and Native American drums and all this sort of thing. So although the the move was a 
was one of survival, if you like. I did pick something that I thought, well, this is going to be interesting. This is going to be different. And it's going to open my world, if you like. Did you have to travel far from where you were in Calgary to get to this farm? No, that was in Saskatchewan. So, I mean... It's still kind of far. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, by, by UK standards, it's a long way. It was maybe 12 hours on a bus, <laughs> eight hours on a bus. Yeah. Canadian standards is like a drive down the road. Exactly. And then you, so you spent a few months uh, on three farms, you said, and did you just keep moving eastward toward Toronto? Was that what you did? Yeah. At that point, I knew that my family were going to come out and that I was going to meet them in Chicago. But that was happening in November. So my friend in Calgary told me, you have to move out. And that was in, that was in June. Right. So I had quite a bit of time to kill until November. And that was another reason why the workaway thing was so appealing, because I didn't have to tie myself to any job contract, or I wouldn't have to lie to an employer and say, I'll be here for X number of months. I could just turn up, do some work. They would feed me. They would give me shelter. I wouldn't be spending any money, but I wouldn't be earning any money either. So and also, it would be an interesting experience. Exactly, yeah, yeah. But I think all, those, all these, the other things came first in a way. Right. But yeah, I was on the sage farm for two months and they got to a point where I just thought, this is getting a bit odd and also a bit dull. So that was when I moved on to the next one and then the next one. And by the time I was in Toronto, it was the end of October. And then I met you and, and then left for Chicago. And I imagine as it got colder and colder, the possibility for working on a farm reduces because the season's ending, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. So I think that's probably another reason why when I was flying back from New Orleans, I just decided to go right back to Toronto because it was a nice hostel. It was a city. So a lot easier to get a job. Yeah. And uh, farm work would be very restricted if you're going to work on a farm, it would be doing something indoors during winter, which yeah. there's no harvesting. It might be cleaning up cow shit or something in the massive cow, <laughs> you know, sheds they have in Canada for the winter time. Yeah. And that would be fun. I remember you looking for work in Toronto, which was another ordeal in itself in a way, wasn't it? How did you find trying to get, you know, a reasonable source of income as a as a, as a foreigner, as a new person in uh, Toronto in Canada? I found it a lot easier than getting work in the UK. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But then, I don't know, maybe the economy there was just doing better or maybe because the population's about half of what it is, it's that there are more jobs per person or something. But I know that I remember that you helped me get my first bit of work when I was out there because you were working at the, the data entry mm -hmm. job yeah. where you just had to go to that, that person's living room yeah. where they had all those computers set up and you just had to type in, was it exam results or something? I, it was very weird. It was basically names and addresses and a little bit of bio or something. It was bizarre. And they were bringing in truckloads of little forms that were coming from, in, from Halifax and all these places on the other side of the country that were coming bang onto our desk in Toronto. And we're just like these little minions just typing away in this little room with about 20 PCs. Yeah. So I have you to thank for, for setting me up with a, a bit of work there to begin with. And then from there, I just went door to door, handing out CVs and eventually got a job at Gangster Burger. Good times. <laughs> 
making burgers at what 3 a.m 4 a.m yeah to drunk people coming out of nightclubs <laughs> and that was an experience that you had for the remaining time you spent in toronto yeah so that's where i worked for the remainder of my time in canada and yeah it was just a nice a nice routine that you wake up quite late you're in the hostel chill out for most of the day and then your shift starts at seven or something you head along working till three and then come back and do it all again it was a really nice life i I liked it for that the short period of time i was doing it do you think you captured the essence of what a work holiday permit is all about in the sense that you kind of woke up in a holiday-like environment being in a hostel as was your choice where you were chilling out meeting people from all over the place and then for a few hours in the evening which was your routine you'd be making some money without the stress in a sense of having a job it was a way of making money so you could just relax and enjoy your non-working hours yeah i'd never really thought of it like that but i, I guess in a way it did it did end up being a working holiday but i never really intended for it to to happen like that and it almost just happened very organically that i ended up at that particular place and with that particular working routine because there were other people who worked in that hostel who had nine to five office jobs. Yeah. It probably wasn't as much of a working holiday for them. I, I feel like it was maybe more of a regular office life. Yeah. Well, you have to share a room when you come home. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Slightly less convenient. Do you have a favorite memory from the hostel? Let's, let's talk about uh, the Canadiana because like you said, it doesn't exist anymore. And there's tens of thousands, if not maybe maybe hundreds of thousands of people who have passed through there. It's hard to say, Mm. but a lot of people, a lot of people who have very fond memories of the hostel. Now it's been leveled and it's just flat. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's difficult because I I think in a way it would be, it would be like asking someone for a childhood memory or for, because you don't specific, you don't have, or at least I don't have specific memories of this time and this day and this place more just a memory of the vibe and a memory of the feeling of living in a place that was very homely. The, the quizzes every Monday night mm. or something, just small things, small things that aren't very interesting and exciting, but that are still meaningful because they become a part of your routine in a way. So you just really like the ambiance of existing yeah. in that? space in that time yeah in that environment having the quiz every monday night having a working routine where i came home at a point where most people had gone to bed yeah so i had the communal kitchen all to myself i had the communal movie room all to myself (laughs) there were enough people about to socialize with if i wanted to socialize so i think for me it was a very different experience from somebody working nine to five and they finish at five and they come in and everyone's using the kitchen at the same time. And it's all just a bit manic. Yeah. So I think, yeah, those are my favorite memories of it. It's just the, the experience of the daily routine and the weekly routine of being there and seeing different people and catching up with different people. You were there when you were 21, you said. I would have been 22 at that point. Do you think having those kinds of experiences at that age helped you to grow as a person and helped you to discover your identity you know even the 
the, the act of being made homeless while you were in Calgary and having to make contingencies to get to Chicago to meet your family and what were you going to do in that time? And then, you know, being abroad and having to find new work in a new foreign city and make new friends. Do you think all these experiences accelerated your personal development? Do you think it would have been just as the same if you had have stayed in Scotland? I think um, the experience can't help put things on fast forward in a way because you're pushing yourself into new situations and you're, you're not even doing it on purpose. These things just happen. I mean, I'd never intended for my friend to say, you need to leave. <laughs> but when he said it, then your brain starts running and you think, oh no, what am I going to do now? And if I'd been in Scotland, I, I could have moved in with my mum or my dad or a friend, whoever, but he was the only guy I knew there. So you have to think on your feet and try and come up with something that works. And sometimes it does work and sometimes it doesn't. But I think more than anything, I felt like I gained a lot more confidence in that year than I had when I left. Sure. Um, I don't know if I learned, I probably did learn quite a lot about myself, but I've since forgotten it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) But the confidence growth was an accelerated growth during that time. Yeah, I I think that's the main thing. If I could pinpoint any one noticeable difference between me when I left and me when I came back, I think it was just confidence in my own ability or confidence in my own abilities, confidence in my personality, Hmm. just confidence that things would work out provided you're prepared enough. No, I can't, I can't say that I discovered anything else about myself, really, other than just maybe I've got more to offer than I first thought. When you're at home, you have your own friends, you have your own family, and you settle into that routine, if you like. And then when you go abroad, you're having to do it all over again. You're having to, or you just make friends with people naturally. And so it's, that's quite reassuring in a way that, oh, I'm not a freak or whatever. It's, it's sort of these people, these people from different walks of life think that I'm a decent person. And these people have only just met me and they've known me for a short period of time, but they've seen, they seem to have validated my life in a way. It's almost like people in that sphere of humanity are always looking out for the best parts of people and accepting them for who they are and almost in a non-judgmental way. Well, I, th- I think you have to have an open mind. In a, if, if you're going to be living in a building with 300 other people, <laughs> you can't really be going around making enemies. So I think that you basically just have to learn to tolerate people more. And then maybe through tolerating them, you begin to respect them or befriending them or just secretly hating them. It's definitely a different way of living to what most people experience. Normally, you would pick and choose who you live with. But if you're in a, a hostel where you have no control over your roommates yep. <laughs> or your bunk mates or whatever, then you basically just have to learn to roll with the punches and, and deal with those any issues as they arise. That's true. They come up from time to time. As I'm sure you're aware, we've had a few characters come by, even in those few months we were there. Yeah, yeah. And you have to navigate 
those people. I mean, not everyone is, is easy to get along with and not everyone is strictly logical or sane even. <laughs> and you, you basically just have to try and, and get by without making an enemy. Yeah. It's an interesting exercise in uh, interpersonal relationships, isn't it? Yeah. I, I mean, I can't think of anyone when I was out there who was unpopular in a way. I can't think of anyone who, who people really didn't like. There, there were people that were quite divisive, mm -hmm. where some people liked them and some others didn't. But there was nobody that everyone just thought was odious, which is, which is good in a way. I mean, because you'd think statistically that number of people in one building it's going to be mayhem. It's probably got a lot to do with, like you said, the demographic of people being in that environment are quite open-minded and easygoing, probably even more so, and willing to adapt to their living conditions and the types of personalities whom they're uh, sharing the space with. And uh, yeah, it makes for some funny stories and uh, funny characters, definitely. <laughs> Would you have ever done this Canadian trip with a friend or were you always determined to come over on your own? Well, it's a difficult question because my initial plan was to come out on my own, but to immediately move in with a friend. I guess in a way it doesn't really apply to me, but I think that from the people that I met whilst traveling, the people who set off together as friends rarely ended their trip together, whether they were still friends or not. They were physically apart and they may or may not have had a falling out. Yeah, because I just think that people want to do different things and you're almost putting people in a pressure cooker by sending them abroad because inevitably one of them is, one of them is gonna want to travel on to the next place whilst the other wants to stay put and explore a bit more. That's just a recipe for people falling out anyway. And I think traveling alone is the best way to do it because then you can be more yourself as well. I think if you're with somebody else, then maybe you're going to just live, live according to what you think they would do, or maybe you would not do something in case they judge you for it, or you do something because you think they'll respect you. I, I don't know. I just think that I, what I loved about traveling on my own was the freedom to do whatever I wanted without any repercussion, without anyone saying, oh my God, yeah. how could you? <laughs> how could you have that other beer or whatever? <laughs> yeah, or, or whatever it happens to be. I mean, and I don't want to give the impression that I'm going around um, committing crimes or anything, but like there is a liberating experience in going to a place where nobody knows you and you can almost reinvent yourself. And even if you don't choose to do that, it's still nice to have the option there. Definitely. A lot of people I've come across more when I lived in Australia, I would have to say, they would often not have the courage to travel solo. Did you ever have that trepidation or were you open to the fact that, yeah, it might be different and it might be potentially lonely sometimes, but it's going to push me to learn my, my strengths and, and reveal my weaknesses. In the end, it'll probably be a good experience. I think that the travel that I chose to do was to try and avoid 
me being completely on my own. I never enjoyed just traveling from one place to another on my own, being in a new place every day. I did that while I was in Canada. I briefly did a trip to the US and I was maybe in a different city every couple of days. And I didn't enjoy that because you're having these very awkward, strained, stilted conversations with other people in the hostel kitchen. And you're only there for a night, so you're not that invested in the conversation. And they're probably only there for a night, so they're not that invested. So when I left Calgary to work on a farm, I was moving into a family home. And then the same was true of the other farms I I lived in. And in the Canadiana was like a family home as well. So I tried to tailor the, the journey to, to be such that I was moving to a place and really absorbing the environment before moving on. The slow traveler. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, that it, it's a more rewarding way to do it because you, you see a lot more of the place you're in, a lot more of the way of life, a lot more of the people, and you're not so much a tourist yeah you're absorbing your surroundings a lot more and seeing through the tourist facade sometimes that a lot of cities and sometimes residents in that cities can put up if you're just there for 24 hours or 48 hours yeah and when i was in toronto i didn't go up the cn tower i can't remember what it's called now yeah but i I never went up that and i never really we went to that hockey game together Mm. but I would have seen a very different Toronto, I think, if I'd only been there for a couple of days. And I knew I was only going to be there for those days. Whereas because I was living there, I went to places that I never would have gone if I'd only been visiting. Yeah, because they were just regular places on side streets. And, yeah. you know, they weren't top of the list on your, uh, your Google forums and all of that kind of stuff. Hmm. So have you got any plans at the moment, Rory, to go anywhere or is it really difficult with the COVID situation right now? I haven't really looked at a list of places. I know in Scotland there is a list of countries where if you're coming back from them, you have to self-isolate for 14 days. Mm. But I think just because if I'm going on holiday, I want to get the full experience. So I don't really see the point in traveling abroad to then stand in a queue at a two-meter distance and then have a vastly different experience from normal. I think I would rather just go on holiday somewhere in Scotland, where at least it's the same rules that I have to follow day-to-day anyway. It's a very strange time, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And we went to Germany last year, and that was great. But thinking of how different it would be if we were to go this year puts you off doing it, or at least puts puts me off doing it yeah and the uncertainty i think is a huge factor with a lot of people right now like you said there's a a list of countries in scotland where if you uh, return from them you have to isolate for two weeks but that list is always changing isn't it yeah yeah i don't know if you saw the thing with spain and change the, the rules for that being changed fairly last minute so it doesn't really fill people with confidence to to book a holiday if when they're out there, they could potentially face not being able to work for two weeks when they come back. Yeah, that's exactly my situation too. I'm getting itchy again already. I haven't travelled since January. Uh, I was in okay. I was in Budapest in January, and uh, I, I actually placed myself on a travel ban because I'd done so much travel in the previous six seven months that 
I just was never home and I was starting to feel like I need to be home for a little bit. So at the end of January, I put myself on a travel you ban. Didn't, you didn't need to. I, well, in the end, I didn't need to, exactly. But at the, end, at the end, it was actually good because I probably, if I had not put myself on a travel ban, I would have had all these flights booked, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And that would have all just been a massive hassle to then deal with getting the money back from that and rearranging plans and everything. So in the end, yeah, the whole world was banned and I'd already placed myself on a personal travel ban. <laughs> You beat the curve. <laughs> yeah, I should have, I should have uh, played some kind of stock or something like that. Just in the last few weeks, when people are starting to think about traveling again, and I was like, oh, man, I was looking at flights to Greece. I was looking at doing a trip to Romania and then going into Moldova and in the Ukraine and coming back around to Bucharest. And I was just thinking, oh, these are, I'm getting, I need to go away. And then I, I checked the stats and you see what the, the, the numbers are in some of these countries. And you just think, is it going to be mm-hmm. really risky? And is it, is it really worth it? And, and so when you go on these trips, are you still, are you staying in hostels? I like to get a mix. So I actually stay in hostels less than, you know, years before. Uh, hostels have changed a lot, actually. Uh, they're becoming very boutique, which is fine, but sometimes that's not what I want. So, uh, yeah, I, I do Airbnb, hostels, still do couch surfing. I have that many friends now in all these different cities that it's often I'm staying with friends, which is really great because that's when you get to see the city and it's natural. Well, and you have a tour guide as well. That's awesome as well. Yeah. Yeah, but I still quite like the adventurous idea of going somewhere I've never been before and going somewhere where I don't know anyone potentially. But even when that happens, you know, sometimes I bump into somebody I know that's crazy, but that's how small the world is these days. Do you, but do you still get the same feeling as you used to or? You mean like when I first started traveling? Well, so what I'm thinking is that, I mean, if it were me, I probably wouldn't stay in a hostel again just because i feel like i've had that experience i've done it and i feel like if i was to do it again it probably wouldn't live up to how enjoyable it was last time and then i think it would make it a bit sad in a way definitely onto something rory because if you try to replicate something that you've done in the past and go in with an expectation it can bite you in the bum Uh, so i think you're right sometimes it's good to just leave it that experience was that experience at that time and it was great now I'm older, my life is different. I should probably look into another way. Uh, there's definitely some truth in that. And I have been burned in the past by going back to some places where I've had fond memories and the experiences being not what I expected. And that's the key there is, is when the expectations are not met, that's when the memory becomes a bit of a sour taste in the mouth. But if you don't have an expectation at all uh, and you're completely open-minded, then that sometimes is negated. In terms of the, the feeling, I think it's impossible to get the feelings of when you go somewhere for the first time because it's all new and, and unknown, you know, adrenaline-fueled experience. And I haven't had that for a while. And I'm constantly thinking about a way that I could get that back. And I'm still thinking about how, and I'm coming more and more to the conclusion that I need to choose somewhere that's really, really obscure, that's going to push me beyond the boundaries of which I've now got comfortable with. And I think the other thing too is to have 
like you did when you were in Canada, you needed to be somewhere at a certain time. And how you got there, well, that was up to the gods. Just by having to get somewhere by a certain time and the route of which you take is up to how you feel on the day is something that I need to do again. I've done it before and it was great. And I've got ideas of South America and things like this. But again, it's not something that's going to happen anytime soon, unfortunately. Fast five. Five quick fire questions require five quick fire answers. My guests must answer five random questions about traveling without thinking too much. Rory, are you ready to play the fast five? Yes. Question number one, left or right? Right. Question number two, beer or wine? Beer. Question number three, hotel or hostel? Hotel. Question number four, suitcase or backpack? Suitcase. Question number five, pub or club? Pub. Smash the fast five. Fast five. 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 Yeah, I think the, maybe I'd, I'd probably, if I could go back, I would change the suitcase one. But the rest, I think I, I agree with the rest. Do you prefer using backpack? Yeah, if I, I mean, if I'm going, depends where I'm going, really. But I, I don't really use suitcases. But that's my answer, so I've got to live with it. <laughs> if I gave you £2,000 right now, is there somewhere you'd like to travel? Right now, meaning with all this stuff going on, or are we living in an alternate reality where everything's okay? Would that change your answer? Yeah. Let's hear both of them. Okay. Well, I mean, if it was right now, right now, I think I would go to Isla in Scotland. It's an island off, well, it's an island in Scotland, and there's loads of whiskey distilleries there. Nice. which I enjoy. So I think I would go there just because I've never been and it's quite exotic for Scotland. Is it up in the sort of northwest where there's lots of Scottish islands? Is it up that way? No, it's basically just west. So if you find Edinburgh on a map and then just follow a, a straight line west, it's, it's there, yeah. Um, but if we were living in different times and everything was normal, I would go to the US because I don't think there is a better destination for just anything. I think it's got everything you could possibly want within the boundaries of a single country. And it's an English-speaking country as well, which is always useful. Um, Do you ever have any issues with your Scottish accent, though, curiously? Not that I can think of in the US. In Canada, I did only once, I think. And I was in a service station buying some groceries. And I'd stacked a whole load of stuff on the counter, just basic necessities. And the guy checks it through. He says, that's $10 or whatever. Hand him the money. And then I said to him, can I get a bag? And he looks at me as if... (laughs) He looks at me as if I'm speaking a different language. And he says, what? I say, can I get a bag? And again, <laughs> no, no understanding. And he said, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't understand you. And I say, something to carry these items in. He says, oh, a bag. <laughs> yeah. But I, I mean, I struggle to think what else he thought I could have been saying. That's the funny thing, isn't it? I often find it as well because I have an Australian accent, it's not as, as harsh, let's say, as it used to be, but 
even if sometimes people don't quite catch exactly what you said in the context, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? Well, that was my thinking. I thought even if you can't understand exactly what I'm saying, it's a three-letter word. <laughs> I've clearly got more items on the counter than I can carry with my hands. Yeah. So you need a you need a bag. Yeah, I, I don't know what he what he was thinking, <laughs> but he, he understood me eventually. There was once I remember you came back from Gangster Burger in Toronto. I think it was maybe the first time or the second time you were in charge and you were locking up shop yes. after the drunks had passed through. You sent a text. Texting is another level of misunderstanding sometimes. Do you remember what you texted to your boss that late at night and, and the fact that he had no clue what you meant? Yeah, so I was locking up for the first time and the manager of Gangster Burger had asked me to text him to let me know when I had locked up and was leaving. So I said, yes, I will, I will do that. So I cleaned up, everything was fine, locked the door, walking down the street, and I text him saying, that's me away. And then very shortly after that, I get a response just saying, what, question mark. I, I can't remember what my follow-up message said after that, but I basically had to explain, I've left, and I'm, I'm doing what you've asked me to do. But again, the context of the situation, he had asked me to text him yeah. when I was leaving. Yeah. So you would think that a person getting a text message saying that's me away would maybe understand that and think, okay, well, I asked him to tell me when he was leaving. He's texted me. Away means going. So he's probably leaving. I mean, you should have just put a smiley face. Surely a smiley face would be okay, right? Well, it, it, was, it was interesting that it's obviously not an expression understood yes, in, in Canada, in, in other English-speaking countries. We had a lengthy discussion about that, didn't we? Yeah, but you would, you would think just three words. How else would you construe that? <laughs> what else could that mean? I don't know. A great little anecdote that uh, you had with me the next day. And it just made me laugh. Obviously, I, I knew exactly what you meant. Whether that's a contextual thing or because I knew you a little bit or I knew the Scottish culture, obviously, more than uh, your boss. who I, He's Canadian, isn't he? Yeah. But yeah, just, he, I mean, at what time was it? 3 a.m. or something? It was early morning. It was, maybe, it was maybe between 11 and 3. But he'd asked, he'd asked me to do yeah. it. So it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't as if I was messaging him in the middle of the night, complete gibberish. Yeah. Without, without him having asked me to do it. I mean, fair enough. If I'd messaged him out the blue saying, that's me away, you can understand that he would read it and think, I don't know what this means. Mm. But given that I was following the instructions he gave me to the letter, it's just a bit strange that he would turn around and say, what, 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 what do you mean? Something's come to my mind where this has been reversed. I remember you telling me a story where you didn't quite understand what the person in Canada was asking you to do. Do you remember the shovel story? Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, I think this is more of a universal thing. I don't think this is necessarily a Canadian UK misunderstanding. Right. This was on the, the sage farm. So the first farm I was living on and me and the guy that ran the place I can't remember what we were doing, but we needed an axe or maybe it was secateurs or it was, it was a, a tool, some kind of tool. The guy said, go into the house and 
get that tool? And I said, which, which one? Because what does it look like? And he said, the one with the yellow handles. So I went into the house and I'm looking high and low for a pair of secateurs or an axe with a yellow handle. And in my head, I'm imagining something the color of a post-it note. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bright fluorescent yellow, probably plastic because it's not a natural color. And I'd actually seen going into the house, I'd seen the tool he was looking for with a wooden handle. And I thought, well, that can't be it because he specifically asked for one with a yellow handle and wood is not yellow. <laughs> so I'm looking high and low around the house, can't find it. I go back out to him and I say, look, I can't find these, uh, the, the, this thing you're looking for. And he says, oh, it's just inside the door. So then I say, do you mean the one with the wooden handle? And he says, yes. So <laughs> just a, a whole saga of is wood yellow? What is yellow? No, I'd say, I mean, wood is brown, I would say. Wood is wood. I think it's classic though, right? Yeah, or, you know, you wouldn't, say, you wouldn't say get that thing with the yellow handle. You would say get, get the thing with the wooden handle. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? But that was quite an awkward moment for you, was it? It's just a bit embarrassing that I'd seen the thing that he'd asked me to get, but I'd intentionally not picked it up because I thought, well, that's not the thing he's looking for. And if I turn up with that, he's going to think I'm an idiot because wood isn't yellow. <laughs> But he wouldn't have in hindsight. <laughs> no, he wouldn't. No, he wouldn't have. He would have. It would have been exactly the right thing. So I, I look like an idiot for trying not to look like an idiot. <laughs> Rory, I got a, a sort of philosophical thing to ask you in reference to your experiences as well. And it goes back to your time traveling and you being, you know, 21, 22 years old um, and traveling at that time in your life. Do you think that it's something that you would recommend to all people uh, and maybe particularly people from from your sphere or from your neck of the woods as a way of adventuring and growing up and figuring out who you are and uh, see what you're capable of? Yeah, definitely. I think that going back to what I got from my time abroad, it was just a greater level of confidence in my abilities. I think that anyone would have the same experience as well. I, I don't know about you, but I'd imagine maybe the first time you went to a, a brand new country that you're having to think on your feet quite a lot and just navigate a, a completely new environment, which makes you know it challenges you in new ways that you haven't been challenged on a on a day-to-day -day basis so it opens you up to new experiences it opens you up to new points of view and sort of gets gets new muscles working and it gets you building those new muscles and then when you come back you have those muscles to use in uh, domestic life so yeah yeah I think I can't imagine anyone has ever done it and it's been a complete nightmare unless something like a pandemic has broke loose or a plane crash or something got a catastrophic act of God. You know, I think if you take those things out of the equation, most people have probably gone traveling and come back feeling better for it. Even if the experience was a little bit negative, because at least they'll have learned from that and they'll have new tools in their arsenal to, deploy when they get home so the final thing rory i have is um from your experience 
for somebody who is thinking about traveling after all this is over, do you have a piece of advice you could offer them that might encourage them, strengthen them to believe that this could be a fun thing for them to do, go abroad, go on an adventure and see the world? I would say keep an open mind and don't plan anything too much. I think what was great about my time out there was that it, it felt like an adventure because things happened that I hadn't anticipated and then I had to deal with that. And in a way, that was, that was when the adventure began. It was still a fun experience, but me going to Calgary and working in Calgary and living with my friend's family was nowhere near as interesting as living with a, a Christian cult in Winnipeg for a week or living on a sage farm in Saskatchewan, building dream catchers and looking out for spirits on the edge of the field and things. So, yeah, I would say don't plan anything too much. And it's fun throwing yourself into weird situations. And I remember when I was on the, the sage farm, these two German girls turned up and they had just been at this Christian cult in Winnipeg. I mean, I say cult, let's say re religious community because they were nice people. Mm. Um, they had been with this Christian community. They said they, they were telling all these strange stories about it. And listening to it, I thought, I have to see this. I have to go there and experience this for myself because this is just too good an opportunity to pass up. It's, I was there in this, I wouldn't have known about this community unless these two girls had come and told me about it over, over an evening meal. It was almost as if it had landed in my lap, this experience, and I could either accept it or I could say, oh no, this is, this is a bit too strange, it's a bit too odd, I'll just stay in a, in a hostel. And that would, it just wouldn't have been as exciting or interesting or enlightening, I suppose. So it was a weird experience, but you don't regret it at all? Oh, no, no. I mean, it was great. It was great. <laughs> I mean, this is the kind of stuff, it's the whole reason why you travel. It's the whole reason why you go abroad, because you, you do stuff that you wouldn't normally do living at home. Yeah. If somebody asked if I wanted to go and stay for a week with a religious community in Scotland, I would think twice, maybe three times about it before accepting or refusing. Whereas you're in a different country, you've got nothing to lose. Why not? Why not just do it? It's something weird and interesting. Definitely. Yeah, I, I do remember you telling funny stories about your experience in the, the Winnipeg. Really yeah, I mean, it was bizarre. It was, <laughs> it was bizarre, but um, you can't really regret something like that unless something horrendous happens. Yeah. But I, I, think, I think there are too many horror stories flying around. When you're traveling and you're meeting different people, there's so many of these stories about people getting beheaded on Greyhound buses and people getting kidnapped while couch surfing and, and all this. And in reality, it probably happens hardly ever. Almost zero. It discourages people from going out and trying new things. And if, if you're just there living in fear you might as well never have left home really no risk no reward eh rory exactly well man this has been really fun yeah it's been good it's been good to catch up and see you in the flesh well in the the virtual flesh yeah just like to say thanks for coming on thanks for your time well thank you for having me 
Thanks for listening to The Nostalgic Vagabond. My guest has been Rory McLeod. There are more episodes in this podcast series where you can hear more stories and tips from other travellers. Check them out wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow me at The Nostalgic V. Thanks to Tom Forfer for creating the soundtrack to the series. Don't forget, your journey is special. Own it. I've been Alan Hill. Until next time.